Hey, and welcome to A Cup with Joe. With each episode, I'm bringing you rich conversations and refreshing drinks. So sit down, grab your drink, and join me. We have Grant Lian with us today, and he's going to talk to us a little bit about his experience um, surviving COVID in both China and in the U.S. So Grant, um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, sure. Uh, so uh, as you mentioned, my name is Grant Lian. Um, I uh, met you, Joe, uh, uh, a little over 10 years ago now, I guess, um, at the University of Florida. So I'm a longtime Gator. Don't tell people where. <laughs> you don't want I people don't to know that? that school. <laughs> all right. All right. That's fine. fine. In any case, uh, I was a Gator engineer for many, many years. Uh, basically, uh, when I graduated UF, uh, I was an engineer and I uh, went into the avionics industry. And as you may or may not know, um, China uh, has uh, a great aspiration uh, to become a manufacturer of airplanes, uh, commercial airplanes. So that's what brought me and my company uh, you know, to uh, China. And I started working on uh, a domestic uh, air carrier in China. And then over the years, I kind of progressed through that career path. And now I am the site lead slash general manager of a joint venture company that we established uh, for this project, uh, which is based in Chengdu, China. Uh, uh, Chengdu uh, okay. is not probably one of the most well-known cities in China. Uh, it's uh, still a very large city. There's actually over 15 million people in that city, just to give you kind That's of a, a backdrop of size. <laughs> yeah, and it's still yeah. like the, maybe like the fifth or sixth largest city when you, when you compare it against everything else that's there. Um, but it's uh, kind of in the southwest portion. Uh, it is known worldwide as the place that has the most uh, giant pandas in the world. Really? And also, yep, yep, giant pandas. There's actually several facilities and like kind of like national parks where you can go. And uh, they actually uh, have um, facilities where every year uh, they will uh, birth new baby pandas. And they look kind of like naked rats. <laughs> when they come out <laughs> but uh yeah I so if you ever <laughs> if you ever get a chance uh, but then you know a few months later then the the, the fur comes in and they're just these really adorable little cute puffballs and and uh you know they become panda like uh you know little animals <laughs> so that's uh, really cool yeah. so, so tell us what's in your cup today yeah uh, so today i'm drinking um an orange infused water uh, I've been, uh, since I've been quarantined, I've been trying to keep in shape. So I try not to do any heavy sugary drinks. So you will not be gaining the quarantine 15. Yes. Uh, in fact, uh, it's kind of interesting. So I did notice that the first few weeks when I first arrived in the United States, uh, I did put on about five pounds, <laughs> gorging on the hotel breakfasts and just kind of sitting around <laughs> waiting for the quarantine to end. And I think when we started to, you know, get whiff of, you know, this is not going to end anytime soon, we were like, well, let's stop doing that <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, and, and get back in shape here. So, yeah, so uh, that's been one of the, uh, the, the themes of my adventure so far. Gotcha. I can understand. So let me share what's in my cup. And I did not plan this, but it's perfect. So I'm actually drinking um, a drink called the Aviation. Oh, wow. um, and it's it's apparently it's a toaster to like when the aviation industry first took off 
Um, and it's made by a company called On The Rocks. I did not actually mix this, but it's literally just called The Aviation, and it fits perfectly with your line of work and what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah, that's really, really cool. Yeah, I didn't even try, so how about <laughs> that? Um, so let's get into our discussion today. So you told us, you know, kind of a backdrop of what you were doing and where you live in Southwest China. So when COVID-19 kind of began to flare up and you made the decision to come to the States, were you, I'm assuming you thought that it wasn't going to actually kind of take off the way that it did or spread kind of globally. What was the deciding factor for you guys to say, okay, we're going to, we're going to take it, you know, hightail it back to the States for a little bit to shelter out. Well, to be perfectly honest, like, um, I was actually not planning on uh, coming to the States at first. Uh, you know, I was fully uh, prepared. In fact, we had gone on several supply gathering missions uh, just prior um, to uh, coming to the United States. But uh, in the week leading up to uh, my departure from China, uh, the security office of my parent company in the U.S. was uh very, very persuasive in the sense that, you know, we really mm-hmm. think uh, you and your family need and, and all the other uh, assignees in country. So there were, I think, maybe four of us uh, that okay. are kind of scattered out in, in different parts of China. Uh, they kind of sent the same uh, call to call, call back home, if you will, <laughs> to, to all mm-hmm. of us. And that was kind of what was like the, the major contributing factor um, in the sense that, you know, if I think the the real fears at the time were, you know, in the event that something would happen, you know, as American citizens, you know, how much access would we have to the kind of care we needed and things like that. Um, those okay. were contributors. So we, we did feel that it uh, would be more um, maybe uh, accessible to get the help that, we, that, that we needed um, if we were located closer to the home office, so to speak. So that would be... Okay my major driver for uh making the decision how long have you guys actually been here so uh i i've actually been uh in this particular hotel since february 1st um and okay uh, so right now i am uh in a hotel slash suite of residence in in cedar rapids iowa uh which is not the biggest of cities especially when we compare it against the backdrop of uh, 15 million population city that I, I moved from so just a little bit smaller just a little bit smaller how so if we're saying from February 1st to now so what is that four months uh that would be almost five see, months uh, if I feel like it's yeah I guess it's four months four months yes so go uh four months in a week <laughs> so yeah I think wow the, uh, yeah, it's been a uh, much longer than we anticipated, and I think to answer your earlier question, I had definitely not anticipated that it was going to kind of play out the way it did. <laughs> so, I think we all thought it'd be a couple of weeks and then it'd be over. Yeah, no. Um, I remember when I got off the flight, um, there was another uh, friend of ours who works for the consulate in Chengdu, uh, who was mm-hmm. there with his daughters, and uh, we got to chatting and and. You know, they had some experience uh, with evacuation orders for diplomats. Uh, And at the time, they were like, you know, usually, you know, these things go for like two months, you know, but kind of plan for three, right? (laughs) You know, Uh, know, kind of like that. So at the time, we were like, well, we're still optimistic that we'll get back uh, in, I think at the time we were targeting April. 
Uh, okay. so, so that was uh, our going in position was that, yeah, we'll, we'll ride it out and then uh, things are going to calm down and uh, we'll be back by April. So. Okay. So now that it's June, we know that uh, it won't be by April. Um, is there any kind of time frame that you can even try to guess or estimate now for when you might return? There really isn't. And uh, there's a couple of factors playing into that. So firstly, uh, there is the fact that, um, at least as of today, uh, there are very, very few flights uh, between China and the United States. In fact, uh, at present, there are no U.S. carriers that are even permitted to carry uh, passengers from the United States to China. And uh, every week, there is actually only, uh, I think, one flight a day uh, operated by a Chinese carrier. Uh, they, there's a system called five ones and I'm not sure exactly mm -hmm. what it means, but <laughs> it basically okay. leads to there's like a limited number of cities in China that can accept flights from uh, non-China, not even the United States, but just from, from outside of China. And then, okay. uh, you know, so so even, um, you know, even if if other problems didn't exist, uh, it, it's extremely challenging and also uh, excruciatingly expensive. Um, to to book a flight uh, today to go back, and what's also exacerbating the issue is the fact that uh, as of March the twenty eighth, um, uh, a, a an order or regulation was put out uh, by the Chinese government, basically restricting anybody with a foreign uh, visa or a foreign passport from entering the country, even if they were to show up at the day, <laughs> at the door. So the reason oh, wow. for all this is because. Um, at least uh, officially, uh, China has gotten most of its COVID uh, situation under control. Mm -hmm. And uh, what they're really uh, trying to do now is uh, make sure that, you know, they're able to, quit, to, to really precisely monitor uh, people coming into the country to avoid uh, what's being referred to as import cases, uh, mm -hmm. which is the uh, majority of the official new cases that are popping up in China today. Okay. So until that policy is lifted, then, uh, you know, uh, then, then if we can find a flight, uh, then we can go back. And uh, I guess the current projections um, range anywhere from 60 to like 100 days, uh, you know, so that's the current projections. Um, and then a lot of the uh, talk is revolving around, well, how is the rest of the world coping? And uh, mm -hmm. is, is the case counts going to uh, reduce uh, in time? So. Okay, so a lot of factors yes. um, that would impact that decision. So basically, we're, you're going to stay tuned and see what happens. <laughs> yeah, you can definitely yeah, put it that way. So, Wow, how are you all coping? Yeah, uh, so uh, like I said, I think uh, one benefit is uh, like living in a hotel, for example, I didn't have to worry about toilet paper. <laughs> so uh, that was a big thing uh, that, was, that was freaking out around. Uh, so there was a lot of like, you know, these kind of necessities that I just didn't really have to worry about. So that, that helped a bit. But uh, in all seriousness, I think just being busy uh, has kept us going. You know, my my kids are, uh, you know, they they were they actually adapted to this homeschooling thing quite well or remote schooling. So officially it's actually remote schooling. Um, I know that was a big challenge for a lot of people in the U.S. Uh, when mm -hmm. uh, school started to get canceled, uh, at least in the case of, for example, my son. Um, you know, doing classes with his teacher through, uh, you know, video chat, 
I think it made him feel like he was just talking to the teacher one on one the whole time. So, <laughs> so I think that really actually got him more interested in the school than rather than less. So, uh, and and they they had you know a lot of work to keep him busy. So that's coming into a close here pretty soon. But then we're gonna have to figure out how to occupy their time <laughs> when that happens. Uh, but uh, that kind of kept them busy. And then as far as myself, you know. Uh, even though I've been uh, in, uh, you know, this situation for, for so long, I mean, from right from the beginning, uh, I was heavily involved uh, because when I first got to the U.S., the situation in China was still ramping up mm -hmm. and China was actually uh, in the middle of their uh, spring festival holiday, which is the biggest holiday in China. Um, it's also, uh, you know, most people will go back to their hometowns during that time. So with the virus going on, it became a very complex situation. We didn't want, you know, uh, carriers coming from all over the place to, you know, to to cause a risk to the to the workplace itself. Okay. So right, so right when I arrived, I actually spent probably, you know, a week uh, just on the phone every night, you know, <laughs> trying to set up, uh, get ourselves uh, back, um, you know, put 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 a kind of work from home plan in place. Uh, mm -hmm. while we figured out the logistics to get uh, sanitization, get masks and supplies, thermometers, uh, and things like that to the office uh, in time. And we we did uh, eventually open the office for business back uh, in time by, I believe it was February the 24th. So okay. uh, within about three weeks of after my arrival, we, we opened the, uh, the facility back up. Uh, and got everybody back. Um, in order to do that, we actually had to make sure that everyone was back in Chengdu uh, mm -hmm. two weeks prior, <laughs> so that they could so they could quarantine. put out their their quarantine period. And so some people had to cut their vacation short. In fact, I actually canceled my vacation <laughs> um, right before, uh, you know, kind of anticipating that that was going to happen to me as well. So, so yeah. they've been back in the office since February. Yep. Uh, my office has been back working actively full. The, the full office has been back uh, in the office uh, and the factory um, on February 24th. But not uh, as you would not like it was before. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Okay. So there's definitely a lot of things that are different now than there were in January. So, so what's different? Uh, glad you asked. So uh, <laughs> Yeah, so the big thing um, that I think uh, I want to focus on, uh, on just basically the management of the COVID virus in China is that, you know, the measures are quick, they're decisive, and they're very consistent. Um, even though, theoretically, each site and each uh, province or city does have its varying degrees of, uh, you know, uh, differences uh, in how they're managing it, but the themes are very much similar. And those themes are around, you know, we actually heard them before, social distancing, uh, wearing yes. face masks, and uh, temperature checks. So these were all lessons that were largely learned during the SARS epidemic from back in, I think, 2003, around that time frame. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't know if you remember that, but that was a big fear in southern China. Uh, I was actually there for that, too. <laughs> so okay. I've been through quite a few epidemics in this, uh, in, in this uh, past decade or so. Um, but uh, yeah, so so uh, immediately as the, uh, I will say I first heard about the epidemic in around January the 20th, and I was actually on a business trip. 
Um, and, uh, you know, on the flight back from that business trip, you know, everybody on the flight masks and you mm-hmm. know, temperature checked. And, and this was like, you know, probably a few days after the, the WHO was, was notified. And I know there's a lot of criticism about how China may have delayed the information, but we're talking, mm-hmm. about, we're talking about days, right? Not months <laughs> of, of delayed action. It was within days, uh, the airport was checking your temperature. Uh, and if you were above like. I think it was like 39 point something degrees uh, Celsius, which mm-hmm. I think it equates to basically like 101 or something like that um, Fahrenheit. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to convert for us, you, yes, you, in the yeah, U.S. You be, uh, yeah, yeah, you would be uh, subject to an immediate quarantine. Um, okay, so repeat that. Um, yeah. Let's because that's one thing that we've had a lot of controversy about: how long it took China to notify the WHO, mm-hmm. and you're saying it was really just a few days versus the story that we're getting or we have gotten that well, they covered so, this up as long as they could. Yeah. I And I, I don't think that they didn't cover it up. I think there was definitely some effort to contain or to at least uh, control uh, the flow mm-hmm. of information. Uh, I think that what we know now is uh, there was first some discovery in December um, and then uh, it didn't really reach the public until uh, mid-January. Uh, so probably that sounds like about three weeks. Um, what I was referring to was, I believe the official timeline shows that the WHO was notified in January the 11th, and the general public uh, was also notified around that time in China. Uh, and by the time of my flight, which was like January the 18th, so about a week later, uh, we were already starting to see measures being taken uh, in public. Okay. So, yep. To help control the Correct. spread. Yep. Okay. And then, so what's kinda, diff- oh, go ahead. Yep. Yeah, I was just going to so go. So what's different in your workplace? So since everyone's been back to work, um, you know, we've, I've seen lots of literature, things around, you know, kind of mm-hmm. the work environment after COVID. What's it like, at, well, that you've heard since you're not there um, in your workplace? Yep. Yep. So what we put into place is, and I believe it's fairly common, um, is uh, we have mandatory temperature checks uh, when you come onto the campus. And then uh, because the campus does house several companies, when you are actually in your own office, you are, you, you are also subject to uh, temperature checks during the day. Uh, masks are still recommended to be worn all day. Uh, the cafeteria for a time uh, was uh, operating on a delivery only basis. And okay. so you place your order, um, the cafeteria would make their order, deliver it to uh, your particular company. And then only designated employees could come and and basically contact, contact list, fetch that to distribute it to the rest of the company. Everyone ate to their desks. Uh, we are still encouraged now, even three, four months later, uh, to use telecommunications instead of meeting in meeting rooms, if, if, uh, if possible. Uh, so that's okay. still in place. Um, but I think, uh, oh, uh, the HVAC was actually turned off during the winter. We had to shut the HVAC off and uh, open the windows, uh, which was previously not allowed. <laughs> uh, so we had to, uh, we opened the windows uh, to allow for a fresh air ventilation. So those are just some of the uh, uh, kind of the higher level measures. Um, to me, one of the most interesting things is actually the registration. Okay. Uh, and the registration is so, and this is not just to my workplace, but to like the entire country, right? So almost everyone who is on the grid, so to speak, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, you know, is assigned uh, this health code. And what this is, is it's a QR code 
and um, uh, it's integrated with like uh, there's an application called WeChat um, or uh, yeah, which pretty much everyone in China has to do all kinds of amazing things like uh, pay bills or pay you know even beggars. You can give them money that way. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, but anyway, uh, when you would enter a location like a apartment complex or a place of work or board a vehicle like a plane or a train or a bus, uh, you would scan this code and it would flash you as red or green. And in the background, it logs that you have now taken this particular route. And what happens is if over the course of, you know, time, uh, there is somebody who is a risk individual has crossed your path, your code now becomes red. <laughs> and so you can't trade. enter. So you would not be able to, well, you would not be able to enter that particular place, but the, 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 the data behind the system, uh, basically allows you to trace, well, where was the first point of exposure? <laughs> was it on this particular bus route at this particular day <laughs> at this particular time? Uh, or uh, so on and so forth. So it's kind of big brothery, kind of scary, but uh, that is uh, one of the ways that they've been able to quickly identify, you know, where there have been risks of breakout. So that's that's been a, a really uh, a really interesting and potentially controversial method <laughs> uh, measure that was taken. But they're so. able to trace kind of the 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 point of contact for people and kind of find these super spreaders as well using Correct. this technology yeah. yeah and that the information is actually public so even before this was rolled out you know i could look up uh that i took you know uh train number such and such on this day and you know it, it would say yep that train was good or you know, uh, I guess I never saw the, the one that wasn't good, but, you know, in theory, <laughs> if it wasn't good, you would know. <laughs> so You would know. Uh, yeah, you would know. So. How is America and the way that we're handling this pandemic, how is that viewed um, in China? Yeah. Um, so uh, I think the takeaway in China is it's just there's not that that top down organized, consistent message. Right. Um, and I think that's part of it. And the other part of it is, uh, you know, I think we're finding that even if there was a consistent top-down message, the level of compliance, you know, due to whatever it may be, you know, we'll, we'll call it American culture, if you will, <laughs> it's just not there. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, in China, in, you know, Japan, in Korea, when the pandemic was taking off in those places, you had, you know, over 99% people complying. Uh, and like I said, you had temperature checks just everywhere. Like if I went grocery shopping, I would get my temperature checked. Like when I, when my car would pull into the parking garage, then when I would like leave the car and, you know, go into the shopping plaza, there would be another station there. And then there will be another station when I actually go into the store that I wanted to go into. <laughs> And then when I came back, uh, I would get checked at my own apartment complex before I got wow. there. And that's if I was yeah. allowed to go out at all. <laughs> so mm -hmm. uh, when, wow. when the, when the pandemic, epidemic was really starting to kick up, um, apartment complexes were actually limiting uh, the number of people and how often you could actually leave your apartment. And in order to compensate for that, they would uh, actually bring fresh 
food and vegetables uh, to the apartment complexes to distribute to the residents uh, so that they wouldn't have to necessarily go out. So uh, I think, you know, when when China looks at what's going on in the U.S., they they see they expected that there would be a lot stronger response and it's just not there. Right. So mm -hmm. you have politicians arguing with each other, the other president of the United States, you know, refusing to wear masks while the health experts within the United States are saying that you should. And you have, you know, governors trying to reopen uh, when there's, you know, still a lot of cases being counted. And today we are actually arguably seeing an uptick in cat cases after some places have started to reopen. So I think the perspective that China has is is just, you know, why aren't you doing what we showed you how to do? <laughs> so, so that's that's really you know a lot of uh, a lot of uh, the sentiment there, and then you know the other side of it is you know uh, a lot of people they do see the criticism, they do see uh, a lot of the blame uh, that the mm -hmm. government is trying to pin on China, and in some cases it's it's legitimate, but mm -hmm. uh, the sentiment is like. Why are you spending so much time trying to blame this on China when you have a bigger problem, right? Like when you should be trying to spend that same energy to contain the virus situation within the U.S. And uh, you know, I would say that with all the you know racial violence and protests that are going on now, that has further eroded you know this perception of America being able to take care of its business uh, in China, and that's being jumped on, you know, by Chinese politicians and, you know, kind of being flowed, uh, you know, people hear about this, right? Like, you know, yeah. even people in China who are illiterate, like they hear about it and, you know, they'll ask, it's like, what's going on over there? It's like, are you guys safe? <laughs> you know, and we don't know. <laughs> so so that's, that's really, you know, that's the feeling that I get a lot of when, when people ask me, like, are you safe and stuff, you know, uh, ordinarily I say yes, but like, I, I, it's not lost on me that I think the situation was at least more strictly controlled. And, you know, to be honest, I don't know that I would face, you know, given that I'm ethnically Chinese, I don't think that I would have faced uh, racial uh, issues, uh, you know, in China versus in the US where, you know, we've heard cases of uh, violence against, you know, obviously uh, black people as well as Asian people, uh, especially during the, uh, initial outset of the outbreaks so have you faced any kind of uh, discrimination or maybe slights or things since you've been here yeah i would like to say that for the most part you know in, in my interactions you know with hotel staff and restaurants and stores that i've been to since the beginning since we weren't always on lockdown just now uh it's been okay uh but mm -hmm. um you know you yeah, every so often like a uh a about a week or so ago I was taking a walk with my family in a neighborhood and uh, a car came up from behind us and just honked and did a hand gesture. It wasn't a finger or anything, but it was just a unrecognizable hand gesture. And that okay. was, you know, so who knows what that was, but, you know, mm -hmm. in the back of my mind, it's like, wow, you know, like, was that, was that maybe some kind of, you know, discriminatory or some kind of, you know, racial driven <laughs> reaction and, hopefully you don't want to know right but yeah but yeah. Uh, that is definitely on the back of our minds um especially since you know we we know that it's in, in this environment it's kind of a thing so mm -hmm. well i'm gonna 
hope the person was wishing you just a good day and was giving you like a blessing <laughs> um, other than the opposite end that it, it may have been. I'm glad that you all are actually safe. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so with some of the, I don't want to call it tensions, but misconceptions of, um, you know, of the Chinese people and things or the, the distrust that we have here. Like what are some of the misconceptions you've seen that we have about China or the Chinese people that just aren't true? Well, um, I guess a couple of things. Um, I mean, I would say largely, at least the people that I kind of know, even even the the people that I kind of unfriended on Facebook or whatever. <laughs> like, uh, you so know, you went through one of those phases. Too. I, I, absolutely, you know, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, for the most part, I think I think people recognize that you know the the Chinese people are people just like anybody else, right? Um, so I think I think that part is is okay, but I think. Uh, you know, one thing that, that I find uh, a little bit unsettling is, you know, there is definitely a lot of mistrust and mm -hmm. uh, a lot of blame being thrown around. It's like, well, why did we allow so much uh, business and so much industry uh, to get stolen by China? Well, you know, I, it's a two-edged sword, right? Like, I, at the time the decisions were made, you know, it was definitely in the in in the economic interest of American corporations to to transfer some of the work over to China. And I mean, to that extent, even my current role exists because uh, of requirements or offset requirements in order to capture what is undoubtedly going to be the largest aviation market in the world for the next, you know, half a century, probably. <laughs> um, so uh, but on the, on that front, you know, I I think it's it's often touted that uh, you know Chinese people and Chinese workers or Chinese Americans are are these risks of IP theft, uh, and you know I, I would say that of course there's there's definitely cases where that's true, but the, again the large majority of people aren't. Right, they're they're not set out to do to to steal anything, and like it's not terribly different from trying to from like a Pepsi worker trying to figure out how Coke tastes the way it does. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. like I that's my personal perception. I mean, I'm I'm sure there are more uh, deep systemic, uh, you know, uh, espionage kind of attempts, but you know, I, I don't think that that's actually unique to china per se uh you know that if you I, I once read a cia report a few years ago that actually had highlighted you know obviously china was on the list but you know countries that we ordinarily view of as friendly like france <laughs> uh, are also very high on the list of you know perceived ip theft um and yes and, and again i kind of i kind of go back to you know, at what point is it just litigation? And at point, what point is it, you know, uh, progress, right? So if you kind of look back and you look at the, uh, the uh, Denmark or Sweden or even Japan, you know, a lot of the things that they're great at making today, those ideas came from America, <laughs> right? Way back when. Uh, you know, Lego was a ripoff of uh, an American toy. Uh, you know, I think a lot of I didn't people, know that. Yeah, like a, a lot of people, I think, are f relatively familiar with 
how you know Toyota uh, figured out how to make cars by learning a lot from Ford, and then when they weren't mm-hmm. satisfied with how Ford was doing it, uh, by looking at how some convenience stores operated in America. So, at what point is it just kind of experiencing and then taking that experience to 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 make progress in your home country? So that's I think one misconception, and and related to that misconception is also this this idea that well China doesn't invent anything on its own. Or does it have its own innovation? And I think that's really, really misplaced. I think, you know, as we see by what we talked about earlier today with this QR code system to track and identify, you know, super spreaders, you know, they're able to deploy ideas that really work for their population really well. Uh, and quickly. And quickly, right? And, uh, and, you know, I've been China watching for almost 20 years now. I mean, I remember a time in China when there were more bicycles than there were cars on the street. And now it's like there's more bicycles on the cars on the street again. But the reason for that is because, you know, they they looked at the problem of what we call the last mile uh, in terms of public transport and like telecommunications. What, it, what this is referring to is like when you take a train or a bus and then you get from one hub to another hub. Well, now you have like two more miles before you get to your house. Okay. What are you going to walk there, <laughs> right? Uh, and, you know, so they they were able to 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 capture that problem and then uh, come up with uh, solutions. In this case, I'm talking about dockless uh, bike sharing, which means that you could borrow a bike and take it to wherever you want, and then just lock it up there, and the next person can locate that bike on the internet and do the same. <laughs> Uh, to go to where they need to be so they can take that same bike back to the subway station, for example. And these things, you know, are are really, really common uh, in, in recent years, like just finding ways to, you know, quality of life improvements that, you know, are very, very well suited to the way of life in China. Uh, you know, sometimes it makes me feel like, uh, you know, I'm living in the future when I'm in China just because of how convenient everything is. I can order something on my phone and it will be delivered for free uh, within, you know, the afternoon. Uh, and, and I can, you know, have them pick it up anywhere or, or you know, uh, set waypoints or whatever, uh, all, you know, from the convenience of wherever I am. So uh, that's, that's been uh, really impressive to me. So that's, I think, is another perception that I think is is driving uh, or is 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 uh, is unfortunate because it the reason that people think China is stealing all this IP and technology is because they think that they can't come up with anything on themselves. And I think in contrast, they they can and are. So <laughs> isn't China the first country to go completely like contactless pay? I don't know if it's first, but it is virtually contactless pay completely. Because yeah. again, I remember very, very recently, I and mean, we're talking about you know, in maybe nine or ten years ago, that China was largely still a cash society. Uh, I remember like staying at a hotel for several weeks, and I would have to go to the bank and like get a bag of cash <laughs> to, to go pay for my hotel bill, right? <laughs> and this was like like you know 10 15 years ago it wasn't that long ago right um in fact i remember a time when you if you wanted to make a international call you would have to go to like one shop you know on the street that had that 
circuit and then you would like pay the lady cash to, for for every minute that you wanted to talk to the united states uh, like wow. I, this was not all that long ago and mm -hmm. then like you know i would say it happened maybe seven or eight years ago they just jumped right over all that they didn't even bother going to checks or credit cards or anything like that it went from full-on cash society to full-on contactless pay and it is to, to give you an idea how widespread it is like here in the u.s you know, you can go to Target and use your Target app to pay, or you can go to Starbucks and use your Starbucks app to pay. But there's really not, I mean, I think Apple Pay is coming uh, coming up finally on this a little bit, but there's really not a universally accepted way to pay anything. And with at least two major competitors in China, uh, you can go to, you can pay your hotel bill, you can buy a plane ticket, <laughs> you can... You can, like I said, you can pay alms to a beggar on the street, uh, all contactless by scanning a QR code and putting in your password, or even scanning your face, right, to and to complete mm -hmm. your your payment that way. Um, and it is, uh, you know, now you're really only constrained by how much battery life you have on your phone. <laughs> so. And for some of us, that could be that could be kind of scary at times. But no, I've seen some some research things about other um, what would be emerging markets going from not even having bank accounts, jumping straight to contactless solutions, kind of like what you just described. So that's going to be fascinating to see. And then we're still here. Like, are we swiping? Are we inserting the car? Like, we don't know <laughs> which one. Yeah. That's, <laughs> Everyone else. Again, that, that kind of, kind of goes back to one of the things we talked about earlier is that, you know, a lot of people, in China, they view America as being very advanced, very powerful. But, you know, we see these standard battles all the time, right? So, like, you know, whether it was DVD versus Blu-ray or whatever, or, uh, you know, Apple Pay versus some other, you know, PayPal or what have you, like, you know, a lot of ideas are really good and they just never take on because they can't standardize. <laughs> so Right, yeah. right. So You can't direct all 50 states and all and plus we, we're, we're an individualistic society yeah so i'm going to bring us to our last kind of segment that i call last call this would be a closing question for you what would you say to those of us who have gotten restless with social distancing we've given up on you know kind of quarantining we're going without our masks because it seems extreme and it seems almost like it's not worth the effort what would you say to to, to those of us who want to completely abandon these measures yeah, well, I mean, I think uh, what I the first thing I would say is, you know, you ain't seen nothing yet, <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, like there is, it could be a lot worse, right? Uh, and then not just in China, you know, I I have friends and coworkers all over the world in Europe as well, who you know until very recently they weren't allowed to even drive outside of their neighborhood without, uh, you know, kind of a pre-approval or permission. So, I mean, like, you know, what we've seen in the U.S. is really, really, really mild compared to what has been deployed pretty much anywhere else, right? Um, that's probably the first thing I would say. And the second thing I would say is, you know, going back to the whole individualistic thing, you know, I, I understand that, you know, you feel within your rights, you know, um, or you feel like it's, it's uh, affecting your rights. I understand that you, that you, they, people may feel like, you know, I don't care if I get sick, you know, so I get to decide uh, if I want to uh, take these measures or not. And to those folks, I would say, well, I, I think that's really a, another big misconception is 
you know, having this kind of solidarity uh, is it, it makes it less difficult for other people, first of all, to also do the same. And it's all really in the end game of trying to not only not get yourself sick, but not, you know, unintentionally get someone else sick. Because we do know that there, you know, this disease is asymptotic. <laughs> so you could have it and not even know, or you could, your body could react differently to it. So you don't even know. But if you are not social distancing and not wearing face masks, you could, you know, unknowingly transmit the disease to a loved one or a stranger that, who takes it back to their loved ones. So I think that's, you know, what I would say is, you know, it's it's really not, first of all, not not that much work. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> think for more than your, just yourself. All right. I think that's a really good closing note for us. So think of others more than just yourself. Yeah. Um, so thank you for your time this evening. I hope that you are not here in the U.S. for too, too much longer. You get to go back home to all of your things. Um, so stay safe, uh, stay busy, and I'll talk to you soon. Of course. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, thanks. It's been really nice uh, to, to chat about the experience. And uh, just uh, for the record, you know, I, I don't feel like it's a terrible thing to be back home in the U.S. either. I've gotten to, you know, eat a lot more uh, heavy proteins <laughs> than I <laughs> ordinarily. And, uh, you know, there's definitely something nice to be said about, you know, blue skies on a nearly daily basis. Uh, so that's been positive. Um, but yes, uh, I absolutely thanks for uh, the well wishes. And, and I do hope to be back to kind of my normal life uh, sooner rather than later. Yeah, I like to see your pictures in China of you of doing course. things. <laughs> yes. All right. Okay. Take care. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Grant and learned a little bit more about the quarantine experience in China. I also hope we were able to dispel some of the misconceptions America might have about the country. On a final note, as Grant put it, think about more than just yourself. When we think about more than just ourselves, we can overcome just about anything. Until next time, friends, stay safe. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of A Cup with Joe. You can check out my blog at haveacupwithjoe.com or if you know someone that I should sit down with, send me an email at haveacupwithjoe at gmail.com. See you later.